0: Father in heaven, we thank you for another day that you have given us. And Lord, we thank you that uh, each day we wake up because uh, we know Jesus Christ and have faith in him. If we are believers this morning, we can say that uh, your your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And Lord, there's never a morning where we wake up that we're, we're not in great need of your mercy. Lord, because we we daily fall short of your glory. We fall short of of living the lives that that you want us to live. And that is why we need a Savior. We need the Lord Jesus who lived a perfect life in our place and died for our sins and rose from the dead. And Lord, we want to know him better and we want to follow him more closely. And we pray that through your word this morning, you would help us to do that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're continuing to work through some of the Psalms together. So if you would take your Bibles and open up to the 13th Psalm, that is where we are going to be today, Psalm 13. And I'll read it for us. It says, For the choir director, a Psalm of David. Verse one, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Enlighten my eyes, or I will sleep the sleep of death. And my enemy will say I have overcome him. And my adversaries will rejoice when I am shaken. But I have trusted in your loving kindness my heart shall rejoice in your salvation I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me In Philippians chapter 4 verses 6 through 7 Paul writes be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Those two verses presuppose that each one of us is going to come up against things that are going to make us anxious, things that are too difficult for us, things that cause us to worry. But these two verses that Paul writes in Philippians tells us that there is a way to experience the peace of God even in the middle of those difficult situations. And what we want to discover is how do I get from point A, which is anxiety, to point P, which is peace? Well, those, verse, those two verses tell us that the way to get there is through prayer. Through prayer. And there's a key phrase at the end of those two verses. It says the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds where? In Christ Jesus. Jesus and the salvation that he purchased on the cross for his people, that is the thing that makes the journey from anxiety to peace possible. Because without Christ, there can be no peace, right? Jesus has purchased our peace. That means it's a possible destination for us as believers to arrive at, even in the midst of great trial. He is the foundational reality that makes those prayers effective to bring us from anxiety to peace. And when we turn to the Psalms, we find there uh, many prayers where the psalmist is making that journey, right? He's facing something difficult. He's overcome with anxiety and he throughout the course of the psalm he works from that place of anxiety to the place of peace by the end of the psalm he has rested his mind on the lord he's cast his cares upon god and he is at peace and that's the same thing with this psalm psalm 13 david goes from being plaintive in verses one and two to pleading in verses three and four to praising In verses 5 and 6, he goes from a sorrowful complaint to an urgent cry to confident praise. He makes his way from anxiety to peace. And just like we see in Philippians 4, where there's an underlying reality that makes that transition possible, Philippians 4, that reality was Jesus Christ and what he's done, so when we study Psalm 13 we're going to see that there's an underlying reality that makes it possible for David to go from anxiety to peace. And that's what we're going to discover as we work through this psalm together. So let's let's take a look. The first two verses, we see David starting at that starting point that so many of us find ourselves in. He is plaintive. He is lamenting. He is on the verge of despair. In these first two verses, David asks, how long? And he asks it four times. Look at verse 1. He says, How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? David feels forgotten. Forgotten by God. Now, God is omniscient, so can he forget anything? No. We know it's impossible for God to not know something, right? So has God stopped knowing about David? Has he stopped um, seeing the trouble that David is going through? Of course not. But in Scripture, when God is said to remember someone or to not remember someone, what that really means is that God is acting or he's not acting. For example, let's let's go back to Exodus chapter 2. We were here last week in this passage. Exodus 2. And we're looking at verses 23 to 25. Exodus 2, 23. Now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died. This is the king that tried to exterminate the sons of Israel, remember? I think I got that detail wrong last week. I think I said this was the king who knew about Joseph, and then when he died, all memory of Joseph left with him, but that's, that's wrong. This is the king who did not know about Joseph and persecuted the Israelites. This is the king that died. And the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So, verse 24, God heard their groaning, and God what? He remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel And God took notice of them. So God remembered his people. And what do we know that that results in? Him acting. Him acting to deliver his people from Egypt. Up until that point, God can be said in the words of Scripture to have not remembered his people. That is, he has not acted up until that point in Exodus. That doesn't mean he just forgot like we forget. No, it's an anthropomorphism. It's it's God not acting when he's not remembering. When he's remembering, he is acting. So when David says, will you forget me forever, what is he saying? Will you refrain from delivering me forever? Will you refuse to act on my behalf? How long is this going to go on when you're just going to let me continue? Back in Psalm 13, verse 1, he follows up that question by asking, how long will you hide your face from me? God's Face is associated with his favor. For example, turn a few pages over to Psalm 30. Psalm 30, verse 7. David there says, O Lord, by your favor you have made my mountain to stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. So God's favor, by which David's mountain was made to stand strong, is contrasted with what? God hiding his face, right? So God hiding his face is God withdrawing his favor, right? So when David says, how long will you hide your face from me? He's asking, God, how long are you going to withhold favor from me? How long are you going to not act in my behalf? These are two different ways of Just saying that one thing. How long are you not going to deliver me? In these first two questions, we see that David's pain stems from his not seeing God act on his behalf to deliver him. David is struggling, and apparently this struggle has been going on for quite some time. Hence why he says, how long? How long? Verse 2, he asks it two more times. How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? This difficult situation that David finds himself causes him, in his words, to take counsel in my soul. He is being forced, because of his difficulty, to constantly be thinking up possible solutions by which he can free himself from this corner he's been backed into. His mind is in overdrive. He's perpetually planning. And every plan that he comes up with fails. And each time his plan fails, he's forced to do what? Come up with another plan. He is constantly taking counsel in his soul. God is not granting any success to any of his plans that he comes up with. And what's the result? When you make plans and they fail and you're being oppressed by something and nothing you try works, you're filled with what? With sorrow. You have sorrow in your heart all the day, just like David. And David cries out, How long is this going to go on for? At the end of verse 2, we see what the problem is or who the problem is, right? There's an enemy. And so far, that enemy is defeating David. This person, whoever he is, is the cause of David's pain. And nothing that David has tried has succeeded in getting him out from under his enemy's thumb. And so David asks, How long is this person going to have the upper hand over me? And we can relate to David here, right? As Christians, there are times when we, like David, feel abandoned by God. Times of struggle when we think that God should have intervened by now. Things have gotten out of control. Things have gone far past the point when God should have acted, either to prevent this or to stop this or to fix this. But he's not acting. And so we cry out, how long is this going to go on? And, you know, we face enemies, whether it's a flesh and blood enemy or the devil. And he seems to be winning when we face those trials. And we wallow in our grief. We lie in our beds at night doing what? Planning. Trying to figure out how to get out from under this oppression. And we pray as days turn into weeks and weeks turn into months, Lord, how long will you hide your face from me? And it feels like our prayers don't even get past the ceiling. How long will you forget me? Forever? So we all face these dark nights of the soul, right? But no matter how hard or how dark things get, we need to remember that there's somebody who's faced harder and darker nights, right? The Lord Jesus. Hebrews 12, verse 3, exhorts us to do what? Consider him who endured such hostility by sinners against himself. And why are we to consider him? So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So when we're going through hard times, we need to picture our Lord in the darkness of Gethsemane. We need to remember that we have a faithful high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Turn over to the Gospels with me. Let's look at Matthew 26, where we see Jesus in the garden. And we see him going through exactly what David is talking about in Psalm 13. Matthew 26, verse 36, says, Then Jesus came with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. I've been grieved before, but I've never been grieved to the point where I feel like I'm going to die. But that's what Jesus was going through. Turn over to Luke 22. Luke 22. starting in verse 39. And he came out and proceeded, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples also followed him. When he arrived at the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him, and being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Jesus was faced with enemies. Sorrow and agony was filling his heart to the point of coming out through his pores. His Father, his God, had truly hidden his face from him. God had forgotten him, not in the sense of not even knowing he existed, but in the sense of not acting for him, not acting to deliver him from what was coming, right? We see in Psalm 13, David is plaintive. We see Jesus was plaintive in the garden. We have a great high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, But as we continue through Psalm 13, David makes a slight turn. He goes from lamenting, from crying out, saying how long, to making pleas. He's pleading now in verses 3 to 4. He's turning from lament to entreaty. He makes three pleas here. And these three pleas are followed by three reasons for why God should answer his pleas. Let's read uh, verses 3 and 4. He says, Consider me, plea number one, and answer me, plea number two, O Lord my God, enlighten my eyes, plea number three, or, reason number one, I will sleep the sleep of death, and, reason number two, my enemy will say I have overcome him, and, reason number three, my adversaries will rejoice when I am shaken. Those first three Statements by David, those, those three pleas, they are not gentle requests for help. They are urgent cries. Those pleas are in the imperative form. Imperatives are commands, right? But when a person is talking to God, imperatives are not to be understood as commands. They are to be understood as urgent appeals. When, if, you're, if you're swimming in the ocean and a shark grabs you by the leg and you see someone nearby and you say excuse me can you help me please is that what you do no you say help me you know it's urgent it's urgent and that is the sense in which david is speaking to god he's not saying lord if you've got a moment please deliver me he's he is in pain he's struggling he says consider answer enlighten That's the sense in which David is speaking to God here. They're urgent appeals. In verse 3, David is essentially asking God to do the opposite of what he's done so far, right? So far, David feels like God has forgotten him. God has hidden his face from him. Here in verse 3, he says to God, please do the opposite. Look at me. That is, consider me. Observe my plight. Look at what is happening here. He says, answer, God. He's begging God to answer, to respond to his cries for help, because so far, God has not done so. But it's interesting how David addresses God here, after he says, consider, answer. How does he talk to God? He says, "O Lord, my God. David calls God, Lord, which when it's written in all caps like that, it's the unfortunate translation of the name for God, Yahweh. And I say it's unfortunate translation because it's not a translation. When it says Lord, it's the, it's the name for God, Yahweh, the great I Am. It's his personal name by which he has revealed himself to those he was in a covenant relationship with. You could say that God's covenant people are on a first name basis with God. He's known by them. He's not just known as God or the Almighty or Lord. He's also known by his personal name. I'm in a covenant relationship with my wife. She doesn't walk around the house calling me Mr. Slocum or Pastor or certainly not Lord. She calls me Josh, right? Right? She knows me personally, and I know her. And that's how it is between God and his people. David says, Yahweh, help me here. He also addresses him as my God, right? Answer, Yahweh, my God. And I say it's interesting that David addresses God in those two ways because of what David has just said in verse 1, right? If God has forgotten him if God has hidden his face from David, withdrawing his favor from him, abandoning David to the enemy, that would suggest that David's relationship with God has been severed. It would suggest that God can be known as Yahweh to some, but not to David anymore. God might be someone's God, but not David's anymore. But the way that David addresses God here suggests that Despite what David is feeling in the first two verses, at a deeper level, he knows himself to still be in relationship with Yahweh, his God. There's something still tying his heart to the Lord's heart. He doesn't believe it has been severed. David's third appeal in verse 3 is Enlighten my eyes. He's asking God to revive him. We see this figure of speech over in 1 Samuel. If you turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 14, we're looking at verses 24 to 30. This is after Jonathan has just finished fighting a battle in which he and his armor bearer, just the two of them, single-handedly defeat around 20 Philistine warriors. 1 Samuel 14. Picking up in verse 24, after Jonathan has done that, it says, Now the men of Israel were hard pressed on that day. For Saul had put the people under oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food before evening, and until I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. All of the people of the land entered the forest, and there was honey on the ground. When the people entered the forest, behold, there was a flow of honey, but no man put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan, remember, he had been out killing Philistines when Saul put this oath on everybody. Jonathan had not heard when his father put the people under oath. Therefore, he put out the end of the staff that was in his, hands, or in his hand and dipped it into the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his eyes brightened. Or his eyes were enlightened, same verb as in Psalm 13. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly put the people under oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food today. And the people were weary. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See now how my eyes have been enlightened, because I tasted a little of this honey. David, in Psalm 13, he is weary. And he's asking God to revive him. Enlighten my eyes. Enlighten my eyes. And then he begins to give reasons, right? Reasons for why God should look at him. Reasons for why God should answer him. Reasons for why God should enlighten his eyes or revive him. First, first reason is that if God does not consider, if he does not answer, if he does not enlighten his eyes, David says, I will die. I will sleep the sleep of death. Second reason, if God does not do this for David, David's enemy will boast that he has overcome him, verse 4. And third, David's adversaries will celebrate. They will rejoice over the fact that he has been shaken from his position. Now, just like The way David addressed God in verse 3, just like I said, that was interesting, so these reasons David gives are interesting. Again, interesting because David seems to think that God cares whether he lives or dies, that God cares whether or not his enemy defeats him. But again, if God has forgotten him, if God has totally withdrawn his favor from him, then these reasons are not going to be sufficient to move God to help him, they're not going to be sufficient motivators. But David treats them like they are like, this is going to move God. This is going to get God to rise up and, and answer me. So, what's going on here? Well, despite David's circumstances, despite what he's feeling, despite all outward evidences to the contrary, deep down, David knows that God is for him. Even though David is at the end of his rope and all hope seems to be lost, David has hope. There seems to be no reason for believing, and yet David keeps believing. He he knows God cares, and so he gives these reasons knowing that God will think these reasons are more than enough to, to move to deliver him. And we see that exact same phenomenon in Job, don't we? Remember the book of Job, the first two chapters? Job feels himself to be utterly rejected by God because in one day, Job loses everything. He lost all his oxen. He lost all his donkeys. He lost all his sheep. He lost all his camels. He lost all his servants, except for the four that came to give him the bad news. And then he lost all his children in one day. Then on top of all that, he was afflicted with painful boils from the the sole of his feet to the crown of his head. And over and over again, as you read through the book of Job, Job communicates that he feels himself to be the object of God's wrath, right? And yet, as you read through everything Job says, there's these little bursts of light breaking through the sorrow. For example, chapter 19, verse 25 to 27, Job says, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, whom my eyes will see and not another. And as believers in Christ, we observe this phenomenon in ourselves, don't we? We've all faced those great trials that leave us wondering, does God really love me? Is God gracious to me? Has God let me go? Has he rejected me? Have I ever even known him as my Savior? And yet, we find ourselves where? On our knees, at our bedsides. And if you were to to have someone eavesdrop, what would they hear? How would they hear you addressing God? Would you not be saying, Father, Father? My God, look upon me, answer me, revive me, because I am this close to losing my life, losing my faith, losing everything. So we feel ourselves to be rejected by him, and yet how do we address him? We continue calling him Father, my God. You see, despite our feelings and our circumstances, somehow, way deep down, we know he cares for us. There's a sense of belonging to God that goes so deep that not even the greatest of tribulations can eradicate it from our souls. And again, why is that? That doesn't seem to make much sense. Well, when we come to the last two verses of this psalm, I think there's our answer. David turns the corner to praising. How does he get there? Verses 5 through 6, David says, but I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. God's loving kindness is the answer. That's why David, even though he feels rejected, he knows he's not and he keeps coming to the Lord. It's because of God's loving kindness, God's chesed. Remember Psalm 12, when all that's left are liars, remember verse 1 of Psalm 12, David said, Help, Lord, for the godly man that was chasid, that was a man characterized by loving kindness, such a man cannot be found, right? He couldn't find him anywhere. Seems like a similar situation here in Psalm 13. There's no loving kindness type people out there except for one. The Lord, right? I have trusted in your loving kindness. David has trusted in God's covenant faithfulness, in his love, in his mercy, in his grace, in his kindness. It is this thing, the loving kindness of God for David, that is the underlying reality that makes it possible for David to go from anxiety to praise. This is the thing that runs deeper than our feelings. It runs deeper than our circumstances. Our feelings and our circumstances, they're always changing up and down from one day to the other, but God's loving kindness for his people never changes. And it is that which David has come to trust in. David was in a covenant relationship with God. And David knew God would never Break That covenant didn't matter how dark or how long the night got. He knew the sun would come up in the morning. In the same way, he knew no matter how dark or how long the darkness of his soul became, he knew that God would be there. The sun would sooner stop shining than God would stop showing loving kindness to David. God's loving kindness toward David was a more certain reality than anything else David felt or knew or experienced, So even though in verse 1 and 2 he felt forgotten, even though his circumstances told him that God was no longer gracious toward him, David knew that God had not withdrawn his loving kindness from him. And it's that way with us as believers as well. Even though we feel forgotten by God at times, even though our circumstances are telling us God's not for you anymore, even though that happens, because we've come to believe the love that God has for us, we know that what I'm feeling and the circumstances I'm experiencing are not giving me the whole story. And so we keep coming to God, offering up our pleas, knowing that he cares about our pain, and knowing that somehow, some way, sometime, he will deliver me. We know that, as it says in verse 5 and 6, we will experience his salvation. And when it's all said and done, it's not going to be our enemies who are rejoicing. It's going to be us rejoicing in God's salvation. It's going to be us singing over his gracious dealings with us. Now, sometimes when we're going through the hard times, it feels like God's loving kindness, you know, his mercy, his grace, his faithfulness, it can feel like some kind of amorphous, abstract reality out there that we can't really get our hands on, like it's some cloud or vapor in in the ether that we can't lay hold of or stand on. How can I know, how can you know and experience God's love for you that runs deeper than your feelings and circumstances? How can I possibly have more confidence in that than what I can see with my eyes and touch with my hands? Well, let's turn over to Romans 5. Romans 5, in the first five verses, Paul is describing for us the wonderful results of being declared righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, having been justified or having been declared righteous by faith, we have certain things. Verse 1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2, what else do we have? We have obtained our introduction by faith into God's grace. Number 3, through Christ we exalt in hope of the glory of God. And then in verse 3, there's a fourth thing that we receive because of our justification. We exalt even in our tribulations. How can that be? How can I exalt in that which causes me such pain? Well, it's because having been justified, having been declared righteous by God through faith in Christ, I know that those tribulations are accomplishing something good in me and for me. If God has declared me righteous when I was a sinner now that I am made right with him and if he did so through the death of his son now that Christ is alive how much more am I going to make it through everything that's coming down the pike? That's what God says in verses 9 through 10, right? Much more. And I'll let you read those verses on your own. But back to exalting in our tribulation. Verse three, we exalt in our tribulations knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. No matter what comes, God causes that hard time to actually purify my faith and cause me to continue in faith. And that perseverance, verse four, produces a proven character, a character that's battle tested. And that battle-tested character that God has produced in me produces hope. Because I see that on my own, that thing would have broke me. That thing would have made me abandon the faith. But the fact that I just went through that hard thing and my faith is stronger on the other side than it was before tells me that, wow, this God is real, this salvation is real, and this work that He's doing in my heart is real. And I know that no matter what else comes down the pike, God is going to carry me through that all the way to heaven. And so that produces hope, right? Verse 4, proven character produces hope. But what if that hope lets me down? What if I'm deluded? Well, Paul says that hope won't let you down. How can you be certain that that hope won't let you down? Verse 5, hope does not disappoint. Why not? because the love of God. Remember David says, I've trusted in your loving kindness. Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So when when we repent of our sins and we trust in Jesus to be our Savior and Lord, the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and the Holy Spirit pours the love of God into our hearts and What is the love of God there? Is it our love for him? That seems kind of shaky. Or is it God's love for me? It's God's love for me. That's what it says in verses 6 through 8. Verse 6. He explains this love of God for us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die, But God demonstrates what? His own love toward us. in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. See, Jesus, the Son of God, became a man. And he lived a perfectly righteous life in the place of his people. And he experienced what we saw in Psalm 13. He experienced being forgotten by God. He experienced being cut off from the favor of God. He experienced the anguish of having his enemies celebrate over his demise. And he cried out to God on that cross. And unlike David, unlike Job, unlike believers such as you and me, God did not deliver him. Jesus bore God's wrath on the cross and he died, paying the penalty for our sins. But then we know he rose from the dead showing that he paid the penalty in full, right? And he did that so that we as believers would never have to experience being cut off from God's loving kindness. Jesus was cut off from his people, Isaiah 53, right? He was cut off so that we would never be cut off. That's the love of God for us that has been poured into our hearts, that awareness of God's love for us. When God saves us, he gives us an awareness of his love for us. And it's not some subjective, sentimental type of feeling, not that kind of awareness. It's an awareness that is based upon a 2,000-year-old historical fact that Jesus died on the cross for us and rose from the dead. And the moment you believe in Christ, the Holy Spirit embeds that confidence so deep down into your heart that nothing can dig it out. And you might feel forgotten by God at times. You might feel yourself cut off by his grace. But you never fully lose that sense that God is for you. You know, even without knowing that you know sometimes, you know that your feelings and your circumstances are not the whole story. That God has not forgotten, he has not withdrawn his grace from you, and he does care. And it's that awareness, that deep-down, Holy Spirit-given sense of belonging to God that keeps you coming to him. Paul explains it a little differently in Romans 8. Turn over to Romans 8. He describes this love of God poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit in, in different ways. Look at Romans 8, verse 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. If you have repented of your sins and you have trusted in Jesus to be your Savior and Lord, that right there is your birthright as a child of God. And nothing can take it away from you. So when you're going through a trial that's overwhelming, do what Psalm 13 teaches you to do. Pour out your lament to God. Be honest with him about how you're feeling. He's your father. He wants to know. He wants to hear from you. He already knows, but he wants to hear from you. Plead with him. Turn the corner from lament to plea. Trust that Christ has purchased God's favor for you. And just say, Lord, help me. And then remind yourself of the loving kindness of God. And don't stop praying until the settled reality of his love for you in Christ enables you to rejoice in his salvation again. You know, it's that love of God that's poured into our hearts that no matter how low my assurance is, no matter how turbulent my feelings are and my circumstances are, it's that within us through the Holy Spirit that keeps us coming to God and saying, Father, help me. You know, an unbeliever doesn't have that birthright. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Psalm 13. We thank you for all the Psalms that teach us how to pray. We thank you that. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, he, is, he has given us the right to become children of God. We know that there's nothing in us that would make us worthy of that. It's all, that, it's all what Jesus did that that has purchased that for us, that adoption, that, that glorious privilege that all believers in Jesus Christ have. We thank you that we can call you Father. We thank you that no matter what we're going through, no matter how strong or weak we are as, as believers, nothing takes that birthright away. And we thank you that you don't allow that sense to ever be totally extinguished such that we keep running to you as our Father. Even if we feel like maybe you don't want to hear from us or we feel like we're not yours or we feel that way, we still come to you as a child to his Father and we find your arms open to us because of what jesus did lord for any who are here who have not yet turned from their sin and have not yet trusted in christ please convict them with the reality that they are not right with you that they do not have that right to address you as father that they are headed for hell but help them lord to listen to the good news that jesus died for sinners and rose from the dead and he extends that invitation to everyone to come to him to find forgiveness and life and sonship in him and if they would come to Jesus they would be made sons and daughters of yours so may you draw them to yourself I pray in Jesus name amen